You're listening to TIP. My guest today is Adam Cecil. Adam is the founder and managing member of Gravity Capital Management and also the author of a great new book titled Where the Money Is, Value Investing in the Digital Age. The traditional value investing strategies are often rendered ineffective when it comes to tech companies like Amazon, Apple, Google, and the like. Adam has devised a way to standardize tech companies so that value principles can be applied to these high growth companies and potentially give you a new perspective on their value. In this episode, you will learn why billionaire Bill Ackman says Adam's new book is one of the best investing books he's read in years, Adam's business management and price or BMP checklist, why value investors should reconsider investing in high growth tech companies, why generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP do an injustice for tech companies, the concept of earnings power and how it changes the net present value, how tech companies use new return on capital metrics like customer acquisition costs and lifetime value, and a whole lot more. Adam's new book is very approachable and he does a masterful job at distilling down complex topics into very easy to understand examples. I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion and I know you will as well. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Adam Cecil. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie, and today I am super excited to have on the show Adam Cecil. Welcome to the show, Adam. Trey, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled because I just finished your new book called Where the Money Is, Value Investing in the Digital Age. And this is a very topical discussion. And your book is getting praise from many notable investors, including Joel Greenblatt and Bill Ackman. And in fact, Ackman says that it's one of the best books he's read on investing in years. So before we get into the book, I actually saw some recent comments from Bill Ackman about the markets today. And I thought it'd be kind of interesting to discuss. And essentially, what he said is that people are not realizing that a recession is actually calculated from net negative GDP growth, meaning after it's adjusted for inflation. So with inflation nearing 9% now, it would be very unlikely a comparable number for GDP would manifest itself, right? I mean, we'd have to really be going above and beyond there. So therefore, it's almost inevitable that pundits will talk about this recession that we're currently in. But the reality is that unemployment is at all-time lows and consumer spending is still pretty strong. It's trending slightly downward, but it's still up. And I'm wondering if you see the markets the same way Ackman does today. Not really, Trey, to put a fine point on it. I'm a bottoms-up stock picker. And I really believe what What Peter Lynch wrote, you know, uh, 30 years ago, he wrote these books when I was getting ready to go on to Wall Street, and they really inspired me. And when I was going to write my book, I went back and reread them. And the thing that stuck with me the most, what he said was that, you know, superior businesses in the end win in the real world. And that victory is over time reflected in the stock market. And it's the same with mediocre businesses. They will fail or languish, and that performance will be reflected in the stock market. So the economic cycle is going to do what it's going to do. Macro is going to do what it's going to do. Interest rates are going to do what they're going to do. There's going to be wars. There's going to be plagues. There's going to be pandemics. There's going to be recession. But if you have a strong business with a strong customer value proposition and a moat to protect that business, you are going to win, period. And that's really how I approach the market. That makes all kinds of sense to me. And I thought it was an interesting point because there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. In fact, I'm seeing yeah. you know indicators showing that people are very fearful in the markets and there's a lot of talk of recession. And we may in fact be in a recession, but I think Bill's point is more or less that we are in a recession almost by default, like on a technicality in some ways, because you know, inflation being where it is. And the problem with that is that it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree, right? Once people hear that we're in a recession, they might decide to travel less or they might try and penny pinch a little bit more and it might actually manifest into a worse recession. But to your point, I love this perspective of just sitting back and letting the market do what it does and just focusing on the micro. And the more I study macro, the more I'm actually in agreement with you. Look, Trey, there's a reason they call economics the dismal science, you know, I mean, because it's a thicket of weeds 
And, um, you know, I think that's the reason that investors like Bill Ackman and Joel Greenback like the book is because it's very commonsensical, very down to earth. On the one hand, it takes a big macro trend, which is the rise of technology and, and the digital age, which is a macro trend. I mean, that's definitely a macro trend. We're in a time of technological change that we haven't seen in at least 100 years, you know, since Henry Ford and the Model T. On the other hand, it's very micro in the sense it's okay, in that context of technological change, how can we profit from it? And the way to profit from it is to focus on individual digital businesses that have competitive advantages. And the competitive advantages are really important you know, in this kind of environment because you have to have pricing power, right? With that inflation going up, yes. you've got to have a mode so you can increase your prices and keep up with it. Not all businesses can. Yeah, it's funny. When inflation reared its ugly head early this year, I went back and read Buffett's writings on inflation because like many value investors, uh, he's my guru. And it was in the early 80s, you know, when inflation was at its apogee. And he said, you know, the two things you need are pricing power, like you said, and capital light business models. So you don't have to invest a lot of money in plant as the prices are going up. It's getting more and more expensive to build property and plant and equipment. So which businesses have pricing power and are capital light? Tech. So, you know, it's, it's a great period to stop and reflect. And if your listeners have time, you know, I do recommend they pick up the book because it does take the secular trend of technological change and it applies to how we can make money in the market. And, you know, right now, a lot of companies are getting slaughtered in tech and they deserve to be slaughtered because they have no competitive advantage. But then there are a few, you know, sub 5% that do have competitive advantages and they're also getting slaughtered. And those are the ones I'm buying. <laughs> well, one in particular there, and we're going to talk more about this company, I think, in a minute. And I want to just preface all of this by also saying we're going to dive deep into your framework and how we can kind of recalculate earnings on these tech companies to make better sense of them. But one that comes to mind is Alphabet. And when you look at their earnings, they are what they are, to your point, and they keep their prices really low. And that's what tech is usually good for. But I hope no one from Alphabet is listening. But my whole life revolves around Google. And my point is that, you know, even if they raise the price from, you know, a dollar ninety nine to yeah. even a hundred bucks a month, I'd probably pay it. Most of their products are free, but as you say, they enable your life and make your life so much better, faster, cheaper. As I say in the book, that's the mantra of tech better, faster, cheaper. And I quote this study done by uh, an economist, I think he was at MIT at the time, where he went and asked consumers, how much would you forego of your income in order to keep a service? So I think Facebook was $400 and WhatsApp was $700 and Google search was $17,000 a year, which is like 30% of an average person's income. Now, it's just a theoretical question. I'm sure people wouldn't pay $17,000 a year for Google search, but it did directionally indicate how, as you say, valuable these tech companies in general and, and Google search in particular have become in our lives. So a lot of these tech companies get often misvalued because of these metrics that everyone's using for different kinds of businesses that are more manufacturing involved or just more traditional in general. And I kind of want to stick on this topic of GDP and how it relates. I was recently having a discussion with Jim O'Shaughnessy and we were breaking down the calculation of GDP and why it's becoming less relevant. And in a much similar way that you describe some of these metrics in the book, GDP is also influenced by manufacturing businesses, and they're not really factoring what the tech sector is bringing to the party. So what are your thoughts on how GDP is calculated today? And how would you calculate it, given the strategies you outline in your book? We're not measuring important economic developments in our economy, and it's precisely because they're very hard to measure. Every time tech makes something better, faster, cheaper, it doesn't necessarily get recorded in the stats. And you just have to understand that you know, these measures like GDP and generally accepted accounting principles, which I talk about in the book, they were built for the industrial age. You know, they were built for a time when GM and U.S. Steel ruled the landscape. So I think the economists, the econometrics people, the accounting people need to update these systems to account for tech. I mean, even things like inflation, I think inflation has been benign for 40 years I think a lot of it has to do with tech. Tech is so disinflationary. You know, before Google, we needed encyclopedias, you know. Before Google, we needed Google Maps. 
before WhatsApp, you needed to spend a fortune to call India. Now it's free. So all these things tamp down pricing because they, you know, tech builds better mousetraps, better, faster, cheaper mousetraps. And that's a big, big, big disinflationary force on the economy that although I'm no expert, I, I feel pretty sure it's not being measured. To that point, I mean, it's a very archaic method they're using, as I understand it. They're essentially putting people in the field. I think it's roughly 500 people across the country just with an iPad taking surveys of folks. And you'd think this day and age, they could just source from Visa or MasterCard or or some company to actually see what spending is really doing. But instead, we're kind of taking these... uh, very kind of arbitrary approaches. It's kind of mind boggling in a way. And, I, and the only reason I bring it up and I'm kind of sticking on it is because it seems to be driving so many big narratives in the market. I mean, with the recession and how it relates to inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But beyond that, I want to shift focus a little bit to the frameworks that you outline in your book. So first of all, I'd like for you to start off with just describing or walking us through this very simple BMP checklist. Well, this is a checklist I, you know, devised for myself over the years. And, you know, like an airline pilot, that's where the checklist started, actually, the cockpit. So they avoid error prior to takeoff. You know, have you done this? Yes, have you done this? So, you know, my investment checklist, as you say, revolves around three central variables, the quality of the business, the quality of the management, and then the price you're being asked to pay. So BMP for short. So You know, as I say in the book, those are the three most important variables in in my experience to superior investing. So business quality is the most important metric. If you start out with a crummy business, it doesn't matter what you pay. The business will fail and degrade and eventually go out of business. So there can be, you know, at some point, no price is cheap enough to buy a failing business. You have to have a business that has competitive advantages. You have to have a business that has a secret sauce, an edge. Buffett called it a moat. If you don't have that, capitalism is so fiercely competitive that its excess profits will be competed away relatively quickly. So quality of business, business quality is the most important. You know, after that, there's management. You know, in the book, I say Google probably has a better business pound for pound than Amazon. Totally asset light. Every incremental search is uh, potentially 100% profit margin. You can't say that about every incremental package that Amazon delivers because they have to build at a certain point more warehouse space. So Google is a better mousetrap as a business, but Amazon has been the better stock. And that's because Jeff Bezos is the greatest tech manager out there. You know, he started a hedge fund. So he understands these financial concepts. He was an electrical engineering major, but then he also started his career at a hedge fund. So he's married old school business principles with new age. You know, he understands the digital economy, but he also understands the principles of gravity in terms of what drives value in a business. So management is very important. And then price and price is also extremely important. You know, I wouldn't call myself or I couldn't be able to call myself a value investor if I didn't think price was sort of the veto question. So you can have a great business, you have a great manager, but if the price isn't right, you're going to have a crummy investment. So you have to be very careful about what price you pay. And as you suggested earlier, a central problem that I wrestle with in the book is these tech companies have looked expensive since they IPO'd, and yet they've appreciated thousands of fold. So that leaves us with an existential question. You know, either we're due for a dot-com bust like we've never seen before, or the metrics that we've used to calculate price are wrong. And I conclude that the second premise is true. I totally agree about Bezos. And he's also a student of Buffett, probably not surprisingly. I also want to just highlight something really small you threw out there that we're going to get into a little bit later around price, but you described it as the price you're being asked to pay. And this to me is like similar to, you know, that declaration of independence here in America, where it's like that you have the right to a pursuit of happiness, right? Not just not so much happiness, but the pursuit of it. And similar with price, that little reframing you just did there almost subconsciously is so important because you're remembering that, hey, the market is just offering this to you. You don't have to take it. I think a lot of people get tripped up there. Very interesting. All right. So you highlight in the book that roughly, I'm quoting now from the book, roughly half of the US market's gains since 2011 have come from the tech sector. And since 2016, roughly two thirds of the market's appreciation has come from tech. Now, this is kind of going up to 2020. So it's probably even gone a little bit more than that with the COVID boom we saw. 
So obviously tech is not going anywhere anytime soon. So if we're to look at tech companies from the lens of a value investing framework, what are some of the most compelling advantages from this tech sector in particular? Well, there are many, Trey. I mean, let's first start with probably the most important one, which is tech companies don't produce anything physical. Their raw materials are zeros and ones. And so they have no cost of goods, to put it in accounting terms. Coca-Cola was probably the best late 20th century business model. You know, their cost of goods was sugar and water. And then they had to sprinkle pixie dust over it to make people believe that, you know, Coke is the real thing. And tech companies don't have to do that. Tech companies don't even have to buy sugar or water. They just hire engineers and a bunch of laptops and off they go. There's no physical cost of goods. So an average tech company, a good tech company, will, a software company will put up 80 to 90% gross margins. So they immediately have a 30 percentage point head start over even the best of the consumer package company, you know, even better than those. So then you move to, you know, continuing with the Coke parallel. Coke is a branded company. And when they want to expand, like they actually have to physically expand, you know, into Indonesia or South Africa. They have to build plant and bottling plant and trucks and vending machines. And they often have subsidiaries do it, but still it is capital intensive. You know, when Google wants to expand in its geography, they don't have to build any plant. They don't have to move anything around except zeros and ones. I mean, some engineer somewhere hits deploy and boom, new geography. So it's very high margin because they have no cost of goods. It's very high return on capital because they have no few physical assets. And then you get into things like, you know, once people have figured out that Google is the best search engine, people standardize on it. So there's network effects. So the more people that use Google, the more advertisers want to use advertise on Google and Google has more money to make their search network better. And, you know, this virtuous circle goes around and around. You know, Airbnb says more guests create more hosts and more hosts create more guests. So you have this sort of winner take all or winner take most dynamics that you see in categories like online search and e-commerce and social media and short-term home rentals. So for many, many reasons, these companies are just sort of the biggest, baddest economic beasts ever created. I mean, they're just really, really powerful business models, asset light, high margin, and people tend to standardize on them. Google makes seven times more money than Coke does. And Google's only been around 20 years. You outline here in the book that if Ford wants to grow its business, it must invest $10 to produce $1 in profit. Coke requires about $6 and Facebook only $2. I mean, that's dramatic. That really helps put it into perspective. It's pretty insane. You also have this theory in the book that I agree with where a lot of millennials know about technology kind of naturally, but not markets. And older, wiser investors know a lot about markets, but maybe not so much technology, aka Buffett, right? (laughs) Or someone like that. So I think this stems from this lingering effect of the dot-com bubble mixed with the 2009 global financial crisis, where a lot of millennials got really, I guess, gun-shy with the markets in general. They probably didn't uh, have that natural inclination to go learn about it. So when you hear about Amazon having a PE ratio of nearly 100 you might be inclined to just make a snap judgment that we're in this bubble similar to the dot-com bubble. But maybe outline for us how far tech has really come since its first bubble. Well, first of all, I'm really glad you picked up on that point about the millennials. You know, I say, you know, millennials understand tech, but they're afraid of the markets. And older people like me understand markets, but they're afraid of tech. And the the book is really my attempt to to come to terms with tech. And I write there that my son, who's a 26-year-old software engineer, is one of my best teachers, you know, when he can keep his patience with me, that is. But yeah, look, I mean, what I say in the book is to millennials, I understand why you would be shaken by the markets. You know, you've had, as you say, the dot-com bust, then you had the great financial crisis, then you had the pandemic. You've had three major crises in your life. So I said, I get it. I understand. But on the other hand, be rational, you know, look at the data. I mean, you know, have your emotions, of course, 
but then, you know, move to the data, which says that since 1988, which is the sort of the mean year of the millennial birth years, the stock market has compounded 11% a year, which is better than it has over the last 100 years. So the market remains the best place to build wealth. And there's sections in my book about crypto and meme stocks and ESG investing. And all of them, I think, are basically, you know, people being disaffected by the markets and trying to find some alternative. And I'm proposing in the book, look, my alternative is invest in what you know, which is tech. You have an edge over me. You, Trey, and and your millennial friends have an edge over me because you understand TikTok better than I do. You understand this stuff better than older people like me. So use your edge. Yeah. And then, you know, then we're going to get into the more technical stuff about price. But I say in the book that I think Amazon's average PE multiple since that IPO was 150 times earnings, unreported earnings. And for about a third of their life, they have not had reported annual earnings. They've had losses. So as I say in the book, Bezos would have folded up his tent a long time ago if those numbers were right. It's just that they're wrong. And the gap financials are wrong. We've got to make adjustments into the numbers because as you suggest, Trey, Google, Alphabet, I mean, take your pick. These companies are not going away. You know, I mean, back 20 years ago, yeah, there was a dot-com bust. But as I said earlier, Alphabet makes seven times more than Coke now. Like, what, that's, those profits are just going to evaporate? Like, what? You know, Amazon sells more, as much stuff, maybe a little more now than Walmart. Like these companies are here to stay. Now, there is a secondary dot-com bust going on in the market now in mid-22. You know, a lot of companies came public, SPACs, their story stocks, they're not making money. They don't have any competitive advantages. Carvana comes to mind. Those stocks are getting crushed and those stocks probably deserve to be crushed. You know, you have to make a distinction between temporary impairments of value and permanent impairments of value. So that's the babies and the bathwater, you know, and that's the trick right now is to find the babies. And if you make these price adjustments, you'll see, in my opinion, that stocks like Amazon, Google are exceedingly cheap. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Khosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. 
In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. I think it's important to note that you're not advocating to invest in tech just for tech's sake. It's, you know, these companies are just as prone to severe competition as any other industry. And you were talking there about the competitive advantage and Buffett's term being a, a moat is easy to understand. But I've, I've actually found that putting it in practice can be a little bit elusive. So, you know, Elon's recently said that moats are irrelevant because all that matters is innovation. So that's kind of a distraction in some ways. So how do you determine if a business has a strong moat? Well, it's a good question and a multi-layered question. And you're absolutely right. 90 plus percent of all tech businesses are going to go the way of 90 percent plus of business in every other industry, doomed to failure or mediocrity. I mean, Anyone who's been spent any time in the business world knows it's brutal out there. It's the hunger games, man. I mean, people are, are going after one another. And especially in tech. I mean, tech is especially brutal. Move fast and break things, you know. So you've got to have a secret sauce. And I read Elon Musk's comments and uh, I thought about him. And he's absolutely right that innovation is critical. But like many things Elon says, you know, it's a little disingenuous. So Tesla, for example, has a couple of moats that I'm sure he would hate to give away. I mean, his first moat is his brand, right? He has 100% brand recognition. Tesla is an amazing brand. And uh, he'd hate to give that competitive advantage away, his brand. And the second moat he has, which is less obvious, is because they make, I think, what, two-thirds of all electric vehicles, and they've scaled up like a classic manufacturing business, their unit costs are 25% less than the competition. So he has a secondary mode, which he has a low-cost model. So he can say all he wants that modes don't matter. But if you went to him and said, okay, well, we're taking away your brand and we're taking away your cost of that, and she'd be like, wait, wait, oh, okay, wait, wait a second. You know, it's like his bid for Twitter. He takes it back. But anyway, to your question about modes, I actually find it easiest tray when I think almost like a 12-year-old. Like, I don't overcomplicate it. You, you may be, I don't know, but you may be overcomplicating things in the sense of, you know, just ask yourself, who's taken a run at this company historically and failed? Or you could even say, who, you know, who could take a run and sort of game theory it out? Like, how could they tunnel under the moat? So, let's take four companies, and, and I won't dwell too much on them. But let's take four discrete companies and we can go through the moat or lack thereof. So Google or Alphabet, you know, which used to be called Google. So Microsoft spent $15 billion a year trying to beat Google in search. They have a less than 5% market share, less well-known. Amazon took a run at Google in search. Some years ago, Bezos hired the guy who wrote the first search engine, developed the first search engine for Yahoo said, build me a search engine so we can compete against Google. A couple of years later, the guy quit and he left for Google. He went to Google. Apparently, Bezos had a huge temper tantrum. So after that, he said, you know, treat Google like a mountain. You can climb it, but you can't move it. So that's the kind of business. That's like the archetypal moat. Even, you know, he didn't he say, Bezos didn't say moat. He said mountain. You want a mountain. You want a tank. You want a battleship. Pick your metaphor. But you want a business that... Competitors have tried to go after and can't or, you know, game theory it out. You know, Amazon, same, 50% share of e-commerce. Walmart, six or seven years ago, said, we got to get into this game. They tanked margins by a lot. They spent a lot of money on e-commerce. You know what their market share is now of e-commerce? Six percent. Yeah, it's close. Yeah. Seven percent. I read your book, so I... <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So anyway, you know, if Walmart... The biggest retailer on earth tries to make a run at Amazon and makes, you know, has a less than 10% share. Pretty good sign that it's hard to replicate that business. So then the other two that I've never liked, 
And I'll tell you why. And this is just, you know, all trying to help you and your listeners develop sort of thought patterns for moats is I'm never like Netflix, you know, never made sense to me. Why? I never understood what Netflix's moat was. Like they make movies and put them online for people to stream. Like anybody can do that. So I, that's what I thought. And sure enough, that's what's happening. You know, I mean, Hulu, Apple, Amazon, Paramount, Disney. I mean, keep going. And some of these companies are actually have, have an edge over Netflix because they have original content. They have content libraries. They don't have to keep spending on them. But Disney has a huge back catalog. They can just put out there and it's the costs are already spent. So I never got Netflix. And I think, you know, look, Netflix might appreciate, they might figure it out. And by the way, if they start moderating their content costs, I'll be interested. But until then, it's just a, it's a, an arms race. It's an arms war. It is literally Hunger Games where they're all out there saying, I'll spend 10 billion. No, I'll spend 15 billion on content. No, I'll spend 20. And it keeps going up and up and up. And who wins? The consumer but not the company. And then the other one I've never liked, which is getting its comeuppance, is Facebook. You know, Facebook has many of the characteristics I've described, you know, network effects and winner take all, and asset light and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, Trey, they never had like the best social media site. Like no one ever goes, oh, it's awesome. Like you and I would never rave, I don't think, about Facebook the way we would rave about Google, right? It's just like right. people are on it. People are on it because people are on it. And that makes them very vulnerable. And if you look at the history, you know, WhatsApp came along. People started getting on WhatsApp. Zuckerberg bought WhatsApp. You know, Instagram came along. People started getting on Instagram, bought Instagram. And then when people figured out that he was buying up his competitors, TikTok came along. He couldn't buy TikTok. And TikTok is now taking users. So you have to have an edge. You have to have secret sauce. And uh, those are just a few examples of how I think through, you know, whether you have a moat, whether your business is protected for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And we can talk about others if you want. But even to that point, right, Facebook has now 3.5 billion users. I mean, half the world's population, more or less. And so that has to be worth something, obviously. To your point, people are on it because people are on it. But the level of disruption, I think, just from that network effect being so far ahead is worth probably quite a bit. Well, I think there's not to pick a bone because there's still a lot of numbers, but I think Facebook as a company has 3 billion monthly users and 2 billion are on, you know, blue Facebook. So it's only 2 billion. <laughs> it's still, still a lot of people to your point. But, you know, Trey, those network effects can unravel as fast as they ravel, you know, I mean. Network effects happen very quickly, and when they unravel, they, they unravel very quickly. I mean, we've already seen this. Look at Yahoo. Remember when Yahoo used to be the biggest search engine, and then Google just made a better, faster, more relevant one? You know, all of a sudden, down the tubes. So if people decide to congregate elsewhere besides Facebook, it's kind of going to get over real quick. And it seems like that's starting to happen with TikTok. And I think that's why the company is now called Meta, you know, and he's making this $10 billion a year bet on, you know, an unproven technology. Could work, could be huge, could have first mover advantage, but it's not, you know, I don't bet on miracles. I bet on moats and we'll see what happens in the metaverse. But right now his core business is very vulnerable and I think he knows it. Yeah, I'd be curious to see their active users. And I imagine that's kind of declining. I, for example, have a Facebook. I haven't touched it in probably five years. You know, So I wonder how many people are, are like that to your point. All right. So I'd like to dig in a little bit on the accounting issues at hand. You mentioned the gap accounting rules that everyone is regulated by on the stock market. The intention for this is to try to standardize financial reports across thousands of different businesses with very different business models. But what are some of the biggest flaws from using Gap on tech companies? Well, you just have to start in the historical context, Trey. You know, Gap, generally accepted accounting principles, which is what the SEC basically requires all companies in the U.S. to, to follow, was promulgated in the 1930s after the Depression. The uh, federal authorities said, we need to standardize accounting so that investors know what's going on. And in the 30s, General Motors, U.S. Steel, Ford, 
coal companies. They were the big companies out there. And so the rules were built around industrial companies. And the central problem, which we've talked about here and there so far, is that in accounting, the definition of an asset is a, an expenditure by a company that has a projected life of more than one year. So if you build a house, that's an asset, not an expense, because you're going to live in your house for more than a year. But your water bill is an expense because you use your water immediately. So an expense is categorized as something that has less than a one-year useful life. So factories have a 20 to 25-year useful life, roughly, depending on the factory. So if I spend $100 on a factory and I'm U.S. Steel or General Motors and it has a 20-year useful life, every year I expense $5 of that $100, right? 100 divided by 20 years is $5 a year in expense. But R&D expenditures, which are the lifeblood of tech companies, R&D in a sense is the plant, it is the factory, it is the, the wheel, the engine room of a tech company. Well, accounting rules now say that all those expenses must be, the vast majority, 90 some percent, must be uh, expensed immediately. So if you're a, an industrial company and you have $100 of revenue and you expend $100 on a new plant, you only expense $5 of that. So your profit is 95. But if you're a tech company and you have $100 of revenue and you spend $100 of R&D because all those $100 are immediately expensed, your profit is zero. So tech companies have underreported earnings, basically, because of the outdated tech accounting rules. They will change, I think. But until they change, we as you know, intelligent investors need to make adjustments. And to your point, as we just mentioned with Facebook investing tens of billions into the metaverse, I mean, those are immediately expense, even though that technology could live on and produce revenue over years to come. It's a good point. And I would argue that they should be expensed. And if you think about the history of R&D, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, all R&D was a moonshot. It was like some guys in the back with a beaker and stuff figuring out whether they could come up with a great new product. So, of course, it should be expensed over one year. But now, with these giant companies, you know, like Google spends a lot of money tweaking its search engine. They tweak the search algorithm twice a day to make it better, faster, more relevant, to keep the moat durable, to throw sharks and alligators in the moat, to make sure that nobody can get at them. But all those expenditures are expensed. And, of course, the expenditures on their search engine has a multi-year life. It's obvious, but not a gap doesn't recognize that. Similarly, every dollar that Amazon spends on its e-commerce website, expensed every, uh, every year. What are you talking about? Of course, it has a multiple year life. It's building out the moat. So R&D expenditures used to be speculative, and some still are speculative, but many, many, many are not. Interesting distinction there. So now you can start to imagine that there's likely a different method we should be applying to tech companies to find their true value, which you've described here. And I'd like for you to walk us through the concept of what you call earnings power and also harvest mode and describing those two different strategies. Let's use Amazon as an example. Basically, the theory, uh, the concept, Trey, is that comparing Amazon to a mature company like, I don't know, Wells Fargo is like comparing an apple orchard in the spring to an apple orchard in the fall. You know, one is ready for harvest. Wells Fargo is ready for harvest. It's not going to grow a lot. Well, you know, a basic bank. It's mature. So, yes, they spend money on marketing and, you know, this and that. But they're basically in profit maximization mode. They're trying to bring every dollar they can down to the bottom line. So their margins are going to be very high. Digital companies are in the opposite camp. They're like an apple orchard in springtime. The apples aren't ripe yet. You don't want to pick them. You want to be plowing money back into the fertilizer and pruning and all that stuff. You know, Amazon just now caught up with Walmart in terms of retail spending. They only have a 5 or 6% share of total U.S. retail spend here in, in this nation and a 1% of worldwide retail spend. So they have enormous headroom to grow. So they're going to reinvest in their business. So when you take the accounting problems, which we just talked about, and then you take the reinvestment opportunities, basically their profits that they're reporting are not at all what you know, their earnings power could be. 
And I define earnings power as sort of the latent underlying ability for a company like Amazon or Google or any tech company, really, to produce profits when they get to harvest mode like Wells Fargo. So we can walk through the segments if you want of Amazon. I don't know how deep you want to go. Let's go deep. Yeah. So what you're saying right there is essentially, if we go back to gap accounting, where you're trying to standardize all businesses to each other, what you're essentially doing is standardizing high-growing tech companies with late-stage mature businesses, right? So you're kind of just making it an apples-to-apples comparison. So by doing that, let's go through Amazon, maybe even the rough P&L, and describe exactly what you're talking about there. So Amazon has two main segments. They have the cloud segment, Amazon Web Services, and then they have everything else, most of which is e-commerce related. So they report Amazon Web Service as a 30% margin, which is a healthy margin. So there's no need to make adjustments there. But their e-commerce or everything else besides AWS, if you just look at the annual report in 2020, which is when I really got conviction on Amazon, their e-commerce margin was 2%. That's what the Gap Financials wanted you to believe. Walmart's margin was 6%. So if you believe that Amazon's e-commerce margin was 2%, then you were basically saying Amazon is a third less profitable than Walmart. Like That's what the financials were forcing you to believe. And if you believe that, then you know I don't think you should be in the business because it's absurd that a brick and mortar retailer would have three times the profitability of an e-commerce retailer who has no stores and who does all their business online. So I walk through the segments in the book, you know, and I say, well, e-commerce, at least 6% because that's what Walmart is. So I, I kind of get into the, what, 9 10% range, I think, for e-commerce. Then I go to physical stores. You know, they own Whole Foods and, and subscriptions. And those are both very low margin businesses. Subscriptions they use as a loss leader. They give me Prime Video and they give you Prime Video just to cement us into the prime retail ecosystem. Like, ooh, I've got Prime Video. What a nice little add-on so that they can make money off us in e-commerce. But those have a very low margin. But then there are two very high margin segments, which are really recent segments. There's the, the what they call the third-party seller segment, where they're not buying the books and the electronics and the printers and the Swiffer wet jets and keeping them inventory. Amazon is not. They're using their platform to say to other merchants, hey, roughly five out of every 10 searches online for uh, shopping come through Amazon.com. Put your products on our website and we'll sell them for you and we'll take a little cut. That's an enormously profitable business because they're not buying the cost of goods. They're not buying the inventory. They're just using their platform as a platform. So that's very asset light. And so the best comparable there is eBay, which is a similar just sort of sitting there, you know, letting people transact goods. And those margins are 25%. So I ascribe a 25% margin to third-party sellers. And then the best one is because 50% of all people come to Amazon to search for goods online, all merchants, consumer product companies, everybody wants to advertise on the website. So their advertising businesses are now running $34 billion a year, which is almost assuredly pure profit. But just to be conservative, I put a 50% profit margin on that. So when you add up all those segments, the e-commerce margin is not 2%, which is reported. The e-commerce margin, in my estimate, is 15%. So it's 7x. So when I was looking at Amazon, the multiple on a reported gap basis was 90 times. But on an adjusted basis, on an earnings power basis, it was 15 times. And so that sounds pretty good. So I bought a lot during the pandemic. I love that. And just a quick note there about your rule of finding things that are under a 20 price to earnings ratio, because that's essentially a 5% yield. And we're going to come back to that. But anything under that, it seems like it's pretty strong. So even a 15x multiple is very appealing, I would imagine. Yeah. And I make the point in the book, and it's an important point. You know, financial analysts, it's not a precise exercise. It's not like we're aerospace engineers where we're trying to get to a millimeter or the plane will fall out of the air. You want to kind of get in the ballpark. Buffett said, you know, I want to be directionally accurate or it's better to be generally right than precisely wrong. So, and you can play with these estimates that I make. You know, I I show in the book, I outline all my work and say, well, you know, just tell me that you don't think that the e-commerce margin is 10, it's five or whatever, and play with it. 
it actually doesn't make that much of a difference. I think it moves the multiple from 15 times to 18 times. So 15 times, 18 times, I mean, that's still below the market multiple for, you know, a way above average business. So you don't want to be too cute about it. You know, you just want to kind of get in the ballpark. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So sticking with that BMP framework you outlined earlier, we've talked a lot about the business element, right? The B I like to move to the M, the management. And sticking with Amazon, you were talking about how Bezos was maybe the best manager to ever live. It would seem, I think Buffett and Munger would agree with you on that. I'd like for you to provide some frameworks for the audience of how to actually measure management quality as well. So walk us through the two questions or hurdles you use to determine if a company has great management. Yeah. I mean, the two things I say in the book, Trey, are, you know, do they act like owners? Because they're basically two managers of companies. And this is especially true in publicly traded companies where the rewards of being a manager are very, very high. So the one kind of manager acts 
like they actually own the business. And I talk in the book about Tom Murphy, this great manager that uh, Buffett knew and, and trusted, who ran TV stations and then ABC and then for a brief time, Disney. But he didn't own a lot of stock. But he was just this old school guy that believed that he was a steward for the shareholders. And he got rich. I mean, look, he, got, he was, got wealthy, but he never got obscenely wealthy. He never saw the company that he was running as a vehicle for his own personal enrichment. He believed that he was running it for the shareholders. And if he ran it for the shareholders, they would reward him, he would reward them, and everything would work out. Now, the second kind of executive, which is all too common in publicly traded companies, is the guy who's there or the woman who's there for five or 10 years to run the, you know, from age, you know, 55 to 65, and they've got 10 years, and they're basically, they're not playing defense, but they're kind of playing not to lose, just kind of keep it in the middle of the fairway, don't do anything stupid, and basically get paid as much as you can. Get the board to give you as much stock comp and perks, you know, airplanes and life insurance and security details and the perks go on and on. And and these people do not act like old-time stewards. You know, Carl Icahn has this great image of, you know, these guys are like the caretakers of a giant English estate. But instead of taking care of the estate for the owners, they're just, you know, skimming as much as they can. You know, they're taking the sheep and they're taking the milk and they're taking the barley or whatever. And you want to look for a manager who really acts like an owner. Owning a lot of stock is a good sign, but it's not always the right sign because Murphy didn't own a lot of stock, but he acted like an owner. And some guys or some women own stock, but they're ignorant of the drivers of value. And so they ruin shareholder value. They want to act like owners, but they don't know how to be. And that's the second characteristic that I talk about in a book. Are they financially savvy? Do they understand the drivers of value? And it's not like you have to be some sort of financial whiz, but you do have to understand a few basic principles. And the central one is return on capital. So, you know, it's this very simple calculation where you have the assets that you're required to generate the profit. And then the profit. So this is the, what you talked about when I said Ford has to spend $10 of assets to generate a dollar of profit. So their return on capital is 10. You know, Coke, if you put in all the bottling plants, which they put off balance sheet, but that's just a trick to try to trick investors to think that they're more asset light than they are. But the rating agencies require a Coke to put all their bottling assets on the balance sheet. So if you look at that, one over six, their return on capital is 17, 16, 17%, which is good. Anything in the teens is good. But Facebook was what, one over two, 50% return on capital. So you want a high return on capital businesses and you need to understand, I'm going to invest X and I'm going to get Y. And you want to be thinking, you know, almost like there's got to be a cold bloodedness to your management. Like I quote this guy who runs this great aerospace company called Heiko in the book. He's like, Yeah, I happen to be in the aerospace business, but really I'm just in the cash generation business. And the aerospace company that I run happens to be the vehicle. All good managers think that way. They just want to say, I'm investing X and I'm getting Y. What am I getting? What do I have to invest? What am I getting? And if it's not a good investment, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because I feel because it's cool or because I I built an empire to myself. I'm going to do it because I'm a cold-blooded manager who knows how to drive value. And that's what you want to look for. Yeah, I, I actually highlighted that quote in the book about being in the cash flow business. What a great line. And you've actually inspired me to refocus on return on capital because I've kind of shifted my focus when I'm talking about quality of management. I, I shifted over to the interest coverage ratio. And the reason for that is I read Toby Carlisle's book, a good friend of our show here called Deep Value. And he essentially shows that Joel Greenblatt's magic formula, which of course is the earnings yield and return on capital, actually performs better if you simply just remove the return on capital component, meaning just buying cheap stuff works. And when I talked to Tom Gaynor, he said the best way to look at management is by the level of debt. So when I hear you say, are they financially savvy? I feel like there's a, what you're kind of alluding to maybe there is the amount of their stewardship, right? Because if, if you're just leveraging up the business, chances are you're probably not you know, that mindful of the actual long-term effect of that. So with that, I'm curious to know if the debt levels or interest coverage ratios, things like that, weigh into your thinking when you're talking about quality of management. Not really, Trey. 
Tom Gaynor is a good friend of mine and a great investor, and I admire him. But and I, you know, I don't know the conversation. But I mean, the fact is that some businesses can can afford very high levels of debts, and some can't. So the general rule of thumb is: the more steady the business, the more debt you can put on it. So consumer products companies, which don't have highs and lows, can take a lot of debt, and that actually improves not the return on capital, but it improves the return on equity, which is a you know related concept. Whereas cyclical businesses, airlines, you know, manufacturing companies cannot take on a lot of debt because, you know, you could have a lot of debt and then the recession comes and you can't pay off your debt. So Tom Murphy, who I write about in the book, he carried tons of debt. He would lever up to buy a company. Then he would use the cash flow for the TV stations to pay the debt down. Then he'd do it again. He couldn't buy anything find anything to buy, he'd buy back his own stock. So he ran with a lot of leverage. And by the way, insurance companies are levered vehicles. Like, what do you think an insurance contract is? It's a form of debt, right? I'm the insurance company. I sell you a policy. You know, I'm on the hook to you to pay you the the claim. So I don't actually think that's a good marker. Really fascinating. Thank you for that. So a new standard metric that most executives use, especially in tech companies nowadays, is the lifetime value over the cost of capital. And Buffett was even early in this, it would seem, when he was first investing in Geico. Walk us through what Buffett was doing there, the two metrics themselves, and what it's actually telling you when you're dividing the lifetime value by the cost of capital. Well, I'm so pleased you picked up on that because it's uh, it's a very obscure, not very obscure, but relatively obscure concept that not a lot of people get. But it's extremely important to tech companies. And it goes back to the sort of the outdated accounting rules, Trey, in the sense that Intuit, which is another great company that I own that I talk a lot about in the book, we haven't spoken about, but they use lifetime value over customer acquisition costs a lot. Because when they spend marketing dollars to get new QuickBooks customers or new TurboTax customers, they think of it as an asset. They think of it, those expenditures, as having more than one year useful life. Because if they can capture a customer, that customer will be with them for multiple years because TurboTax is a very sticky product, right? Once you start doing your taxes on TurboTax, hard to get off. You know, once you start running your small business on QuickBooks, hard to get off, hard to rip those guts out of the back office. So they know that if they spend a dollar on customer acquisition, they want to get multiple dollars of revenue over the lifetime value of that customer. So it's customer acquisition cost in relation to lifetime value. So Intuit, like many tech companies, wants to spend a dollar of marketing spend, and they think that they'll get, they want to, the hurdle rate is $3 of lifetime value of customer. So if I spend $100 million of marketing TurboTax, I'm hoping that over the lifetime, the customers I acquire from that marketing spend will spend with me $300 million. And let's just say that the profit margin on those customers is 20%. So, and that's probably low, but let's just say 20%. So $300 million of revenue at a 20% margin is $60 million of profit. And I spent $100 million to get it. So that's a 60% return on capital, right? 60 million over 100 million. But that never shows up in the financials because it was all, all those marketing dollars were expensed immediately. So this is one hack that tech companies use to say, yeah, the gap's wrong. They're, these are not expenses. These are long-lived assets that we're creating. And so we're going to rejigger the financials to think about it correctly. Not correctly the way Gap tells me, but correctly the way business people think. Buffett has done this. He bought Geico. Geico's public company in 1995. He bought it for Berkshire. Geico, the last year they reported financials, uh, made uh, $250 million in profit and spent $35 million in marketing. When he bought the whole company and he could control it, he said, to hell with this. This is such a great product. I'm going to tank my profits in Geico and spend like a drunken sailor on marketing because I know that those marketing spend like Intuit will have a positive lifetime value. So in 1999, He spent $250 million on marketing in Geico. He spent the entire profits of the company four years before in marketing. So does that mean they were, quote, making no money? Well, according to Gap, yeah. But he knew that that was baloney. And he wrote about it in the annual. He said, 
yeah, the profits look like they're down, but the intrinsic value is going up. And this is, you know, what tech companies understand. I mean, tech guys are engineers. They are quants. They are, you know, they measure everything. So if you find a company like Intuit or Amazon where the guys, the management really knows what drives shareholder value, they're going to adjust the financials and run their company according to economic reality rather than gap financial reporting. You know, as I said, Bezos should have shut that company down a long time ago if he believed gap. But he was making all these sort of adjustments like Buffett did with Geico and Intuit's doing with uh, LTV to CAC. And it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up Bezos there because I was just going to say that I imagine that's one of the metrics that kept his composure when, you know, say in the dot-com bubble, it went from, you know, went down 94%, I think at one point. So you have to be looking at the dashboard and saying, actually, the business is improving dramatically and the the return on capital is amazing. All right. So we've done the B and the M. We want to move on now to price, the P and the BMP equation. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you're looking for a minimum of a 5% yield we were talking about the PE of 20. With inflation and interest rates both now rising, I'm just curious, does your playbook change to reflect the new environment we're going into? Well, it's an excellent question because rising interest rates compress or depress multiples because, uh, you know, net present value and all that stuff. But not that I had a crystal ball, but I, I knew that when I wrote the book, which was kind of at the peak valuations, I knew that valuations would probably come in. So I feel comfortable still with 20 times, you know, 20 times free cash flow or earnings power is a 5% free cash flow earnings yield. So if I'm getting paid 5% day one, and then the business is going to grow. So year two, I I make 6% and year three, I make 8% year four, I make 10%. I think 5% is a fine place to start and I'm, I'm okay with it. I also had another curiosity. You mentioned Roku in your book, and their price recently soared up to $480 and is now back down in the 80s as of today. Is this an example of when we should, as value investors, back up the truck and load up? I wish I'd learned about Roku earlier because Roku has very interesting business dynamics. I mean, they've basically interposed themselves between the streaming services, Netflix and Amazon, and the viewers. And they say, we're our connection and we're a toll bridge because we have the the biggest share of streaming devices. We're going to charge you to go over our toll road to get to the consumers. Now, I haven't studied it intensively, so I don't know the answer about Roku backing up the truck, but I know the question which is the same question you always want to ask yourself, is their business sustainable? You know, are they going to be able to withstand the competition that is definitely coming for them, just like people came for Google to try to steal their riches because there's a lot of money there, or are they just going to go the way of GoPro? GoPro was a great stock. People loved it. And then competition came along and how differentiated is a selfie stick, really? So you look at GoPro stock price, and it's, which I put in the book, it's, it's a disaster. So I don't know the answer to Roku, Trey, but I know the question, which is, do they have a moat? And that's what you should be asking yourself. And by the way, if you can't figure out whether they have a moat, they don't have a moat. Great point. There's a sentence in your book that stood out to me where you essentially claim that the stock market is not like Emerald City, where there's this Wizard of Oz hiding behind a curtain pulling strings. And we have had lots of differing opinions on this show about that kind of thing. I'm more in the camp of thinking that the market's performance is strongly influenced by the Fed's actions or even the anticipation of them. Is this sentence essentially writing off macro in a similar way, similar, I guess, to how Buffett would advise? Well, I don't think Buffett writes off macro and neither do I. I mean, he says, and he's right, that interest rates are the single most important determinant of stock valuation. So it's in that sense, it's rational that the market decline as the Fed is you know, now lower, uh, raising interest rates. But on the other hand, he's right. And Peter Lynch is right that you know, it's not a stock market. It's not an abstract thing. It's a market of stocks. You know, and I encourage you and your listeners to think about it like a grocery store. You just walk in there and you see what's on sale. You know, you see what's good merchandise on sale. 
You walk into a grocery store, you know a good deal, right? You know when the avocados are, look good and are well-priced, and you know when the raspberries look crappy. Like, it's the same. It's the same. So, you know, markets are going to do what they're going to do, as we said in the beginning. But in the end, superior businesses prevail. I mean, look at Apple from 2010 to 2020. The stock market did nothing, right? It was the lost decade. The beginning of the decade, you had the dot-com bust. At the end of the decade, you had the financial crisis. The S&P was flat, but Apple was up by multiples. Why? Because they had a good business. You know, and I'm not just sort of being cavalier or flippant. It really kind of is that simple. And it really does pay, in my experience and in my opinion, to go back to first principles and think about it like a 12-year-old. Another reason I ask is because Jeremy Grantham once said on the show that bear markets start with these termites and that the termites eat away at the tech companies first. And we actually saw this exact thing with this recent downturn. So it makes me kind of wonder, do you think the rise of tech over the last decade was highly correlated or caused by just the amount of cheap credit that we had available to us? I think the answer to that is pretty obviously no. I mean, anyone can come up with a good soundbite about termites and this and that. You know, good investments don't start with soundbites. They start with analysis. So the reason tech companies have appreciated so much, Trey, has zero to do with interest rates, has zero to do with macroeconomic factors. It has to do with two things. One, in the last 10 or 15 years, technology has hit critical mass to where you know, broadband connectivity was robust and uh, computing power became affordable so that everyone could afford a smartphone. So that's number one. Technology just hit critical mass. And number two, a certain select group of companies figured out a way to make moated businesses out of these tech trends, including Apple, including Google, including Amazon, including Airbnb, including Adobe. You know, just go down the list. You probably know ones that I don't know. But this has nothing to do with with interest rates or easy credit. This has to do with harnessing technological change and then making an incredible consumer product that people love and trust and will never leave. I really appreciate that perspective. And I really enjoyed this book. It's going to be, I think, my new most recommended book. It's called Where the Money Is. Adam, before I let you go, where can our audience learn more about you and the book and any services or resources you want to share? Well, Trey, first of all, thank you for the kind words. I know you read a lot of investment books, so that's high praise from you, and I really appreciate it and am touched by it. You know, in terms of me, even though I understand social media, I really don't like being on it. (laughs) So you can go to Amazon and buy a copy of the book, of course, or if you want to support your local bookseller against Darth Vader, go to the local bookseller. Uh, Simon & Schuster has a webpage on my book with the the reviews from Bill Ackman and Joel Greenblatt and also links to local booksellers. And then the one service that I use, the one social media service I use because I I like it, it's pretty low key, is LinkedIn. So if people want to hit me up on LinkedIn, I've had several really nice chats with readers and uh, happy to connect with people who want to learn more about how to invest in the digital age, because it's an important question. I think in many ways, it's the important question. You know, we've got this century-old value discipline, and then we've got this incredible technology that's come from nowhere in the last 10 or 15 years. And how do you put them together? How do you synthesize the two? That's what I'm trying to do. That's what the book's about. It's a very powerful concept and very powerful tools to use moving forward. Adam, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much again. Congrats on the book. I did too, Trey. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you feel like leaving a review, it really helps the show. You can also reach out to me directly on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And I highly encourage you to check out all of the resources we have for you at theinvestorspodcast.com or simply Google TIP Finance. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.